I'm wondering, like, have you ever been out to dinner or you've been out in public and uh, you witnessed a couple that uh, clearly uh, did not understand the rules of social decorum when it came to public displays of affection? PDA? Like, I remember being in Juarez years ago with our youth group and going to lunch at a park, and it was like make-out park. Like, it's the middle of the day, and there were just couples just, like, going to town. It was crazy. And I'm there with all these teenagers thinking, oh, my goodness. Like, I did not know that this was what this park was known for. Okay? Now, let's imagine just for a moment that... uh You're out of town, you're on vacation, maybe you're at a restaurant and maybe it's a business trip or something like that, and you see a couple that is just like that, like they're really skirting the line uh, in regards to PDA, so much so that you're actually tempted to say, like, like, come on, get a room already. But then you realize, oh, wow, I know them. Like, I know this couple, and they're both married, but not to each other. Like, what do you do then? I mean, do you say something? Do you do, you do something? I mean, this isn't a TV show. Like, this is real life, right? It's happening right there, right out in front of you. And then you may think at this point, well, you know, it's, it's really none of my business, <laughs> That, you know, two adults want to do whatever they want to do. I'm glad it's not, you know, my spouse, but oh my goodness, it's really none of my business. Well, when does it become your business? Like, what if they're your neighbors, your next door neighbors? What if they're a close co-worker? Is it your business now? Or what if one of them is a really close friend of yours? And you see them and they see you. Is it your business now? How about this? What if they go to your church and you see them in worship and you take communion with them? Well, you know, Bobby, it's kind of a, you know, there's a lot of people here. I can't be expected to know everybody. In fact, I'm just going to pray that somehow God will send an elder to Florida where I'm vacationing to this person so I don't have to be the one. How about this? What if they're in your community group? Like your small group and you meet with them week after week along with their spouse, is it your business now? Finally, let me ask you this question. What if one of them were your son or your daughter? Is it your business now? See, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that is so jacked up spiritually and morally. But he doesn't write to them as a stranger. He writes to them as a pastor. In fact, he says, you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. And then he says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. So Paul, like I said last week, isn't some disengaged observer of the dysfunctionality of the church of Corinth. Like this isn't an academic exercise for him as he sees what's going on in this church. He is their spiritual father. So when he sees something, he says something. Like when he hears something from Chloe's household about what's going on in the church of Corinth, 
He, like any good father would, moves into responsibility instead of being passive, and he addresses it. Like the believers in the church of Corinth were so dysfunctional that they were bragging. They were bragging about having members in good standing that were involved in an incestuous relationship. I mean, if that doesn't make you feel good about your own church, I don't know what will, right? Hey, you know what? We don't have it all together, but at least we ain't got that going on. Like that was going on, and not only was it going on, they were bragging about it. They thought it was a good thing. Yay us, right? Look at how tolerant we are. I mean, after all, love is love, right? And now we're on the right side of history. I mean, Corinth wasn't hiding their sin far from it. They were proud of it. Like when they'd go to church, on the back of each of their chariots was a bumper sticker that says, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. In fact, they had a bunch of slogans or mottos as a church that they they lived by, kind of that explained their philosophy of life. Like this is this is who we are. This is what it's like to be part of being a Corinthian, being in the the church of of Corinth. But this is what it is like, and this is what it says. You can stand with me and read this together. In fact, as we read their conversation with Paul, beginning in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, all things are lawful for me. That's their opinion. Paul writes, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a man, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, the church of Corinth had an incredibly messed up, jacked up view of what it was to be free, to have real freedom of agency. They also had a really messed up view, a really insufficient grasp of the significance of their own bodies. Like most people today, they assumed freedom meant that they were free to do whatever the heck they wanted to do. I mean, after all, that's 
freedom, if I'm restricted, if I'm restrained, if I'm held back in any way, I'm not free. And so freedom meant for them that I'm free to do whatever I want, especially in the area of sex, regardless of any consequence. And they'd probably say things like we say today, well, you know, it's just sex. I mean, it's just sex, it's just physical. I mean, it's my body after all, right? My body, my choice, isn't that how it works? In fact, I mean, come on, I'm not hurting anybody. If I'm hurting anyone, it's just me. And so what's the big deal? And so guys, to understand this part of the chapter, you need to see that Paul is actually engaged in a dialogue, a back and forth with some of their cultural slogans. Some of the conversation is coming directly from them. Like Paul knows what they're saying. He knows just how they're trying to justify their actions, their behavior. And so he tells them, this is what you're saying. All things are lawful to me. And Paul responds, but not all things are helpful, are they? I mean, all things are lawful, but not everything is good or beneficial moves you in the right direction. Like here's where the Corinthians are coming from. You need to understand that they have been greatly influenced by the Greek philosopher Plato who literally taught that your body is a prison for your soul. Like your body is a prison for the real you, the self, the person beyond your flesh. That's who you really are. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it sounds like today. It sounds very, very current. In fact, I'm reading this book called Strange New World, a new book by a professor named Carl Truman. And in it, he kind of explains our cultural moment this way. He says, 25 years ago, if I went to my doctor and told them, Doc, I am a woman trapped in the body of a man, my doctor would say, oh, we have a problem. You see, we have a problem with your mind and we need to bring your mind in line with your body. And then he writes, but if I were to go to my doctor, really any doctor today and say, Doc, i got a problem. I'm a woman trapped in the body of a man. My doctor would say, oh, you see, we have a problem, but it's a problem with your body. And now we need to bring your body in line with your mind with how you feel, with what you think about yourself. Regardless of, regardless of if you're 60 or 6, we need to do something about this. Guys, that is our cultural moment. And it sounds actually a lot like what Corinth is going through. Like they grew up hearing that the real you, the real you is the you on the inside. The real you actually has nothing to do with your body. Your body and yourself are two separate things. Like the ancients were way more modern than we give them credit for. They believed that when the body died, the real self could emerge. Like when the body was gone, right? That's when the real self kind of can, can live and be free. And so for them, that meant that their bodies did not matter. And if their bodies did not matter, then what they did with their bodies did not matter. Right? That's just stuff going on with my body. That's not the real me. That's not the real self. I knew, I know I do that with my body, but that's not my heart, my heart of hearts. That's not who I really am. And then enter 
Paul with the Gospel of Grace showing up in Corinth. He says that when he came to Corinth, he decided he was not going to teach anything except Christ and Him crucified. And so he preaches this radical Gospel of grace that you're a sinner separated by God because of, from God because of your sin, but that Jesus, by His righteousness, not yours, not by anything that you do, but what, what He did once and for all on the cross, you can be redeemed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ so much so that one day when your life is over, you will go to be directly in the presence of God. And the Corinthians heard that message and said, ooh, I like that. After all, I mean, what we do in the body doesn't matter anyway. So I guess I can do whatever I want to do. And they took this message of grace and went in the wrong direction with it and really went in a view, uh, went into a direction of a view we called anti-nomianism. Anti-against and nomianism, the law. Like literally in Greek, against the law. They decided that, hey, since I am a Christian now, covered in the righteousness of Christ and forgiven for all of my sins, past, present, and future, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to submit to anyone but myself. I can live without any kind of moral or social limits. I am free from any restraint. And so Paul writes to them and says, well, guys... uh, You know, you are free. You are free to move toward things that will completely destroy you. Certainly you can do that. I'm not your mom. Right? I'm not able to hold you back like a toddler from putting your hand over the fire. You are free to move toward things that are harmful to you and you are free to move toward things that are helpful to you. And his answer to them, all things are lawful. And he says, yeah, but not all things are helpful, right? I mean, you're free to hurt yourself, but I mean, honestly, is that freedom? Like if I just found you in a field just punching yourself in the face because you have the freedom to do so, I would think you were a lunatic. And yet you're making choices that are wrecking your soul. That are wrecking marriages. That's wrecking your life and your family. It's the exact same thing. You think you're free, but you're not free. And then he doubles down. They say again, all things are lawful for me. And Paul responds, but I will not be dominated by anything. You see, Paul, when he addresses this, he's he's really kind of bringing attention to one of the most powerful things that tends to enslave us. Like one of the most powerful things that would tend to enslave us is our need to prove to everyone that we're free to do anything we want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. I don't answer to anyone but me so I can do whatever I want. We are obsessed with, dominated by this desire for dominance. That's why we're always pushing boundaries, breaking taboos, like engaging in transgressive behavior. And so we end up being dominated by this desire for dominance and we become dominated by the very things that we are using to prove to ourselves and others 
that we're free. Like one writer I read this week, a pastor from California put it this way. He said, sin fascinates before it assassinates. I thought that was so good. That's just so true. Sin draws us in. It has this allure. Like it just piques our desire. It's shiny. Like you read in the Proverbs, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. Man, it's such a lie of the enemy. It draws us in because it's transgressive. We shouldn't do it, but it looks so good. It fascinates and then it assassinates. Like I've said over and over and over again, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and will always cost you more than you want to pay. You know, my favorite writer is a guy named C.S. Lewis, guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He also wrote a little book called The Screwtape Letters. And yet, I'm about to quote from that. You've got to understand the background of the screw tape letters or you'll get confused about some of the terminology. Screw tape in this little fiction, work of fiction, is a demon. In fact, he's a chief of demons and he's writing a letter to his nephew, another demon named Wormwood, helping him understand the best way to entrap and destroy Christians. And so when he refers to the enemy, who is the enemy of a demon? God. And so with that as the backdrop, listen to his advice to his nephew. He writes, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in a healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground, God's ground. I know that we have won many a soul through pleasure, all the same, it is His invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. God is the Creator of joy and pleasure. And then He continues, all we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which the enemy God has produced at times or in ways, or in degrees which He has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is least natural, least redolent of its Maker, and least pleasurable. And then He makes this statement, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain and it's better style to get the man's soul and give him nothing in return. Guys, that's how the enemy works. In fact, Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 2.19, you are a slave to whatever controls you. That pleasure you give yourself to, that desire you have that you feed that no one will know and no one will find out, you are a slave to that. I mean, take the test. I mean, is there anything right now 
that you know this is not best for me that you just can't let go of. Maybe it's even an activity that people would look in on and say, it seems like no big deal, but you just are obsessed with it. You're controlled with it. Is there anything right now that you're doing that you can't let go of? You can't cut out of your life. You could never think of fasting from even for a day. You are a slave to whatever controls you. Paul then moves on to the next slogan of the Corinthians, and here it is. They say this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Like they're saying, listen, this is the way it works. You have a natural craving and it's meant to be satisfied by in a natural way. When you get hungry, well, you eat whatever you want. That's how it works. And if you have sexual desire, you satisfy them in any way that you want. Sex is just like food. It's a natural way of satisfying a physical need. Once again, when you're hungry, you eat. If you want sex, you visit a prostitute. Because that's what's going on in the city of Corinth in the first century. It's not only going on, it's acceptable. Not only acceptable, but promoted. Like it's part of polite society. You go to a party, you go to a banquet, and they bring in the prostitutes and put them before the men, and you get to choose. You go to worship at the temple of Aphrodite, and you pay your tithe, and in paying your tithe, you get to sleep with one of the temple prostitutes. That's how it works. This prostitute, this woman, is no more than food for a hungry man. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. What's the big deal? Our body is going to be destroyed anyway. The real me is the one who lives on the inside, right? So who cares what I do with my body? Guys, hear this. God cares. Like God cares greatly about our body. In fact, Paul puts it this way. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. Understand, your body is not some temporary place in which the real you lives for a little while. We are not animals. We are image bearers of God. Our physical bodies connect us to God in ways that would not be possible if we were just a soul. Like we bear the image of God and there's this mystery here that we live directly in the intersection between these two realms, the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Like the physical part of me is as important as the spiritual part of me in enabling me to connect with God. God made me that way. He made me that way because I can display like the image of God uniquely in that way. In fact, even when our bodies die and our souls go to heaven, God doesn't like greet us at heaven and say, whew, man, I'm glad that's over. That was a mess, wasn't it? Now you just get to be this disembodied spirit for the rest of eternity. No. 
Like He is going to raise our bodies back up and give us a new and perfected physical body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. What Paul is saying here is, guess, guess what guys? The body is so important. Your body is so important that Jesus was embodied and actually has a physical body today. Even after He was raised from the dead, He wasn't raised simply by His Spirit, but He was raised in the flesh. Our bodies are so important that when we die, God's going to give us a new body. He's going to raise it up also. In fact, our bodies are so important that Jesus lives in our bodies through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? When he says that, this is what he means. When he says, do you not know? He means, you know. Like, you know this. And I know that you know this. In fact, we all know that I know that you know that you know this. Like, that's all he's saying. He says it six times in this chapter. You know this stuff. Like, you know that your bodies are members of Christ. Like, your body is a physical extension of Christ in this world in some mysterious way. You know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Like God forbid in the King James. Or do you not know that He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. Like your body is a picture of your relationship with Christ to the world. And so Paul is writing, like I've said, he's writing about stuff that's actually happening in the church of Corinth. This is not hyperbole. He wants them to understand that when they engage in sexual sin with these prostitutes, they are taking Jesus with them into the sin. Like He dwells in our bodies through the presence of the Holy Spirit so that when we sin, we bring Him into that sin. Could you imagine? Like, if your mom and dad went with you everywhere and they were always just hovering over your shoulder, seeing everything you see, hearing everything you say, or maybe could you imagine your spouse being in that situation? Would your choices be different? Jesus actually goes with you everywhere. In fact, I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this passage because it retains the punch that Paul intended it to, to have. Like some of the language is cleaned up in our English versions, but like when Paul had this read to the church of Corinth, sitting there multi-generational with these families sitting there hearing these words, this is more of what they probably heard. Your bodies are created with the same dignity as the Master's body. You wouldn't take the Master's body off to a whorehouse, would you? I should hope not. You see, there's more to sex than skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as a physical fact. As written in Scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the Master, we must not pursue 
The kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. Once again, could you imagine this being read to the church and your kids sitting right there and he knows what you do at the banquets that you go to. What Paul is saying here is, listen, church, God cares about what you do with your body. He cares about your body and He has more for you, not less. He's not trying to take from you. He wants to give you more. And so what's Paul's solution for the believers in Corinth? Here it is. Flee. Flee. From sexual immorality, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul says, listen, don't flirt with sin. Don't even fight with sin. Don't even fight with sexual immorality. Instead, flee from it. Like you're not strong enough to fight it. You may think you are, you're not. Like I remember talking with a guy years ago who had a struggle with pornography and he told me, you know what, I don't think the solution is just getting rid of the internet. I feel like that's slapping a band-aid on the problem. I want to be stronger than that. To which I replied, yeah, but you're not. You're not stronger than that. Like you're messing up and you need to do something radical. Like if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Like, don't literally cut off your hands and cut out your eyes, but how about cut the cord on your internet if that's such a huge problem for you? Now, Paul is speaking about prostitution here because that was the easiest way in the ancient world that people would commit sexual immorality. In our world, the easiest way is through internet pornography. The word sexual immorality is literally the Greek word Pornia. It points to any sexual activity outside the marriage of one man and one woman. Like that is the circle. One man and one woman for one lifetime enjoy. Anything outside of the circle is pornia and will destroy you. And so Christians, that's who he's writing to, Christians, build some guardrails in your life. Like if you know that this is an area that God cares about deeply and you don't want to be destroyed by the things that you think you're chasing after for freedom, like build some guardrails. For married people, don't travel alone with a member of the opposite sex. There's no reason for you to do that. If your company makes you do it, change companies or tell your boss, this is not going to work for me. Don't eat alone with members of the opposite sex. I know it's just a meal. It's just no big deal. But it ends up becoming something that is a big deal. You put your guardrails in safe territory so that even when you bust through those, you're not going over the cliff. Here's another one. Don't confide in our council members of the opposite sex. Pray that God will send them somebody, not you. And then finally, when you feel your heart or your desire being drawn drawn toward a specific person that is not your wife or husband, tell somebody. Guardrails for singles? All the ones that I just said for married? Don't become the opposite the uh, part of that. Don't, don't uh, 
Guard your own interaction with these married people. Don't become the one that unravels their marriage. How about here's a rule that you would never think you'd have to set for Christians, but no sleepovers with members of the opposite sex. Like, don't do that. You may, in fact, may need to take some time off from dating altogether just to break the bad patterns that you've built for yourself. I mean, if you're honest, has sex outside of the circle worked out so far? Now, Paul doesn't leave believers here in simply the, hey, don't do this stuff category. Like, this is bad, don't do it, and you just leave church and it's all good. No, he gives them, he raises the bar of their identity in Christ. He reminds them who they are and whose they are. Do you not know? Once again, guys, you know this. I've told you this. We've been over this. You know this, and I know that you know this, and we know that I know that you know that you know this. Like, you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Guys, that's a big deal. Like your body is the living temple of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean simply a temple. Like the language here points to the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwells. You know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Guys, remember who you are. You're not your own. Like you don't belong to you anymore. You belong to the one who purchased you. Like in a little bit, we're going to sing, It was my cross you bore so that I could live in the freedom you died for. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. The price was the blood of Jesus. So glorify, honor God with your body. In fact, even as I read that, the Spirit of God living in you says, yes. And if you're a believer, something in your heart of hearts also says, yes, that's what I want. And so one way we can do this, glorify God with our body, uh, is simply to acknowledge the presence of Christ. This week, I challenge you to purposefully acknowledge the presence of Christ in everything you're doing. Like in your job, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your meals, in your free time, in your entertainment. Acknowledge the presence of Christ. Like He is there. The Spirit of God lives in you. Maybe before you're going to turn something on the TV, maybe ask, hey Jesus, do you want to watch this? I mean, that'd be kind of weird, right? Or before you buy that donut, hey Jesus, do you want a donut? I mean, that's just weird. It, I mean, that's super weird. I mean, what's weirder though? Acknowledging the presence of Christ when you do these mundane things or acting like He's not even there. Maybe one way you can acknowledge His presence this week is just say, well, Jesus, I need You. I need You. Like, I need you right here. And I need you right now. Let's pray together. Won't you take a moment to acknowledge his presence right now? He's right here, right now. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. 
You know when I sit down and when I stand up, you know my thoughts even when I am far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place Your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too great for me to understand. I can never escape from Your Spirit. I can never get away from Your presence. If I go to heaven, You're there. And if I go to the grave, You're there too. And if I ride the wings of the morning and if I dwell to the furthest oceans, even there Your hand will guide me and Your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from You. To You the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to You. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank You for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in Your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are Your thoughts to me, O oh God! They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of the sand and when I awake, I am still with You. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends You and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Amen.